Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. X is for X certificate. That's right. So uh, we're looking at the films of David Bowie. We've already covered some of David's films, haven't we? We have. Um, but uh, these are the ones that were either X or mm. for the pedants out there, they might have been 18 rated yes. at that point yes. in time, or in America. R-rated. Mm. That's right, isn't it? You've covered everything there, I think, Mark. Hopefully. Okay, so we are looking now, initially, at the masterpiece. Because oh. <laughs> Bob, they weren't all masterpieces, were they? They certainly weren't. I uh, mean, where we're going to go uh, in the next episode is we're looking at other films, that some of which we've not even seen. That's right. But or, we need to cover, don't we? We have to cover them. We've got to cover them, yeah. But The Man Who Fell to Earth, just by way yes. of uh, compensation, I've seen The Man Who Fell to Earth, I would imagine, around about... Ten times. Have you really that much? Oh, yeah. I mean, the first day that I went to see it, I think it was with... It was either with Steve Hanley or Craig Scallon, my mm. schoolhood mates, who both ended up in the fall. Um, but um, we went to see it on the Odeon in uh, Oxford Road, which is gone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we went and saw it in a uh, Saturday afternoon and then stayed. We didn't pay. Don't tell anyone. But we, we stayed for another showing of it. So we saw it uh, twice, right. back to back. And then the last time I saw it is a new venue in, in Manchester called Home. Mm. Uh, and it's a line to the old corner house. So yeah. it's, a, it's an art, uh, art centre. Yeah. And they have all great kind of off-kilter films there, low-budget films and all that, you know. And actually the, the Stooges documentary there. Yeah. And they showed The Man Who Fell to Earth around about uh, eight months ago and I went with my good mate Mick Billings and we sat there and had a couple of pints of lager and watched this amazing film great. once again. So that was the last time I saw it. Ah, OK. So what were your first impressions then? So when you saw it at the Odeon in 76... What do you make of it first time around? Well, I would have been 15, um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved it particularly because we were getting to see David Bowie talk, and mm. we were getting to see David Bowie, although obviously he's supposed to be an alien. As everybody says, he, he wasn't that far removed from his own personality. He was devoid of humour. Yeah, sure. Which was a, obviously a massive part of Bowie's character. Mm. Uh, but the rest of it, when you would see Bowie doing interviews where he's being pretty serious, yeah. he wasn't that far removed from the uh, the lead character. Not at all. That was the, the debate, one of the main debates about this film, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and the thing was, I was just getting the opportunity to watch David Bowie just... <laughs> be kind of David Bowie. Right. And I, I absolutely it. loved it. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, uh, yeah, I've watched it loads on video and DVD, but it was just great to see it back at the on the big screen. Yeah. Again. That sure. was a real treat. Because one of the great things about it, apart from that, the Bowie's in it, of course, is uh, Nick Rogue's film. It's just ravishing to look at. It's brilliantly framed and... and- photographed and everything. It's just a wonderful piece of art. Well, I mean, uh, so, uh, we're g- we'll probably get to it in here anyway, but who, which of the protagonists, I mean, I interviewed Bowie, very lucky, yeah. but you interviewed uh, some of the other uh, players, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, well, uh, there were, oh, well, Nick Rowe, which I'll get to in a bit, uh, Candy Clark, um, there were, I did try and get hold of Rip Torn, I couldn't get him, which is a real, I really wish I'd got a hold of him. Uh, Buck Henry as well, who was in it, who co-wrote. Uh, did you speak to Buck Henry? Yeah, well, no, that was via email, so that was another one, but email, it's okay, I can do email. Yeah, of course. Uh, there's a guy called Cy Litvinov, who's one of the uh, executive producers on the film, and uh, somebody, uh, Maggie Abbott, who was a, well, she was an agent and casting director, who also looked after Mick Jagger, so she was one of the people who were responsible for um, getting Bowie the role. Right, okay, brilliant. I so, mean, and there is a story behind Bowie getting the role, which we will get to. Mm. Did you ever, just by default, interview John Phillips? No, I didn't. Right, because no. he did, he, from Mamas and the Papas. Yeah, 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 I know you're into all that kind of stuff in the Americana, yeah. but I just wondered if uh, you could uh, include that as well, just by default. I would have chucked it in there, Mark, believe oh, you me. Not to worry. Anyway, to the film. To the film itself. The Man Who Fell to Earth. 
1976 British sci-fi film directed by Nicholas Rogue and written by Paul Meyersberg, based on the 1963 novel of the same name by Walter Tevis, about an extraterrestrial who crash lands on Earth, seeking a way to ship water to his planet, which is suffering from a severe drought. The film amassed a following for its use of surreal imagery and the performance of David Bowie in his first starring film role as the alien Thomas Jerome Newton. The film also stars Candy Clark, Buck Henry and Hollywood veteran Rip Torn. The same novel was later remade as a less successful 1987 television adaptation. I don't remember that. I don't, but why would you do it anyway? I don't know, really don't know. The film itself was produced by Michael Dealey and Barry Spikings, who reunited two years later to work on The Deer Hunter. Despite a mixed critical response upon release, the film is now considered an important work of sci-fi cinema and certainly one of the best films of Rogue's career. So let's look at the plot now then. Thomas Jerome Newton is a humanoid alien who comes to Earth from a distant planet on a mission to take water back to his home planet, which is experiencing a catastrophic drought. Throughout the film, there are brief sequences of his wife and children back on his home planet, suffering, perhaps dying. Newton uses the advanced technology of his home planet to patent many inventions on Earth and acquires tremendous wealth as the head of a technology-based conglomerate, World Enterprises Corporation, aided by the leading patent attorney, Oliver Farnsworth. His wealth is needed to construct a space vehicle with the intention of shipping water back to his home planet. Whilst revisiting New Mexico, he meets Mary Lou, a lonely, unloved and simple girl who works as a maid, bellhop and elevator operator in a small hotel. He tells her he's English. Mary Lou introduces Newton to many customs of Earth, including church-going, alcohol and, yes, sex. <laughs> she and Newton live together in a house Newton built close to where he first landed in New Mexico. In the meantime, Dr Nathan Bryce, a former a womanizer and college professor has landed a job as a fuel technician with World Enterprises and slowly becomes Newton's confidant. Bryce senses Newton's alienness and arranges a meeting with Newton at his home where he's hidden a special X-ray camera. When he steals a picture of Newton with the camera, it reveals Newton's alien physiology. Newton's appetite for alcohol and television, he watches multiple televisions at once, bit like Elvis, becomes crippling and he and Mary Lou fight. Realising that Bryce has learnt his secret, Newton reveals his alien form to Mary Lou and her resulting reaction is one of pure shock and horror. He leaves her. That's a great scene, it isn't is it? It is a great you, scene. He opens up the bathroom door and she's, yeah. the, the look on her face is yeah, just absolutely it brilliant. It is brilliant. And, and he wasn't there during the shooting of that scene. I think he was ill. I think he'd drunk some, uh, some bad milk, apparently. Oh, right. so, but she said, so she said she had to kind of do that just on her own. Right. Uh, and think of, uh, well, just trying to think of a way of doing it. Right. Uh, Newton completes the spaceship and attempts to take it on its maiden voyage amid intense press exposure. However, just before his scheduled takeoff, he's seized and detained, apparently by the government and a rival company, and his business partner, Farnsworth, is murdered. The government, which has apparently been told by Bryce that Newton is an alien, holds him captive in a locked luxury apartment constructed deep within a hotel. During his stay, they keep him sedated with alcohol, to which he has become addicted and continuously subjecting to rigorous medical tests, notably one involving x-rays, which causes the contact lenses he wears as part of his human disguise to permanently affix themselves to his eyes. Towards the end of his years of captivity, he's visited again by Mary Lou, who's now much older and whose looks have been ravaged by alcohol and time. They have mock-violent, playful sex that involves firing a gun with blanks and afterwards occupy their time drinking and playing table tennis. Mary Lou declares that she no longer loves him, while he says that he doesn't love her either. She leaves him. Eventually, Newton discovers that his prison, now derelict, is unlocked, and he leaves. 
Unable to return home, a broken and alcoholic Newton creates a recording with alien messages, which he hopes will be broadcast via radio to his home planet. Bryce, who has since married Mary Lou, buys a copy of the album and meets Newton at an outside restaurant in town. Newton is still rich and young-looking despite the passage of many years. However, Newton has also fallen into depression and alcoholism, and the film ends with an inebriated Newton passing out in his cafe chair. That's right. I didn't notice until I was uh, talking to uh, Nick Rogue, but the film begins and ends with a burp. So when Bowie first appears, or Newton first appears, he's kind of walking through, is it towards like a fur ground and there's an old tramp he's kind of passed out there, isn't yeah. he, on the bench, and he belches. Right. And that's how Bowie ends <laughs> the film. Brilliant. Okay, that's a proper book ending. Yeah, book ended by burps. Okay, so on to the production then. Paramount Pictures had distributed Rogue's previous film, Don't Look Now, from 1973, and agreed to pay $1.5 million for the US rights. Michael Dealey used this guarantee to raise finance to make the film. Film in itself began on the 6th of July 1975. The film was primarily shot in New Mexico, with filming locations in Albuquerque, White Sands, Artesia and Fenton Lake. The film's production had been scheduled to last 11 weeks, and throughout that time, the film crew ran into a variety of obstacles. Bowie was sidelined for a few days after drinking bad milk, as you mentioned. Uh, Film cameras jammed up, and for one scene, shot in the desert, the movie crew had to contend with a group of Hell's Angels who were camping nearby. That reminds me a little bit of Nuts in May. <laughs> Keith. <laughs> only, only a little bit. Uh, we're talking about a Mike Lee play there. Watch it if you've not seen it. Bowie, who was using cocaine during the movie's production, was in a fragile state of mind when filming. Uh, he said, uh, going so far as to state in 1983 that I'm so pleased I made that film, but I didn't really know what was being made at all. Okay, he said of his performance, I just threw my real self into that movie as I was at that time. It was the first thing I'd ever done. I was virtually ignorant of the established procedure of making movies so I was going a lot on instinct and my instinct was pretty dissipated. I just learned the lines for that day and did them the way I was feeling. It wasn't that far off. I actually was feeling as alienated as that character was. It was a pretty natural performance, a good exhibition of somebody literally falling apart in front of you. I was totally insecure with about 10 grams of cocaine a day in me. I was stoned out of my mind from beginning to end. (laughs) Which completely contradicts Candy Clark's memories. Candy Clark, Bowie's co-star, remembers things differently. David vowed to Nick, no drug use, says Clark, and he was a man of his word. Clear as a bell, focused, friendly and professional and leading the team. You can see it clearly because of Tony Richmond's brilliant cinematography. Look at David. His skin is luminescent. He's gorgeous, angelic, heavenly. He was absolutely perfect as a man from another planet. She added that Rogue had hired an entirely British crew and taken them to New Mexico and I remember David was very happy about that. Do you know, Candy Clark had nothing but good stuff to say about Bowie. Even really. lies. I mean, the bottom line, like, it's great, isn't it? Because, I mean, who can tell? I mean, from the acting and everything. And people were saying, you know, at that point in time, I remember the reviews and stuff saying, oh, he's very wooden in it. Mm. You think, well... He's supposed to be an alien. Well, that's it. And as he says, he was completely freaked out anyway, Bowie, at the time. He was going through loads of personal mad stuff, wasn't he? Yeah, with he An- was. With Angie and with Tony DeFries and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was one of the reasons Rogue cast him in the first place, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, Bowie and Rogue had a good relationship on set. Bowie recalled in 1992 that we got on rather well. I think I was fulfilling what he needed from me for that role. I wasn't disrupting. In fact, I was very eager to please. And amazingly enough, I was able to carry out everything I was asked to do. I was quite willing to stay up as long as anybody. So, onto the music then. Although Bowie was originally approached to provide the music, contractual wrangles during production caused him to withdraw from this aspect of the project. The music used in the film was coordinated by John Phillips, former leader of the pop group 
group The Mamas and the Poppers, with personal contributions from Phillips and Japanese percussionist composer Stomu Yamatasha, as well as some stock music. Phillips called in former Rolling Stones guitarist Mick Taylor to assist with developing ideas for the soundtrack, and the music itself was recorded at CTS Lansdowne Recording Studios in London. Due to a creative and contractual dispute between Rogue and the studio, no official soundtrack was released for the film, even though the 1976 Pan Books paperback edition of the novel, released to tie in with the film, states on the back cover that the soundtrack is available on RCA Records. A Ooh. cover for the, uh, the, the, the novel, the, uh, the, the illustrated one, yes. was done by George Underwood, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, looking out over the lake. Uh, the soundtrack, derived from recently rediscovered masters, was eventually released on CD and album in 2016 to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the film's premiere. The music by Yamashita had already appeared on his own albums. We won't go into all of the tracks and the people who play on it, but the uh, the incidental music, the other music mm. as used in it, uh, is interesting. So you've got Blueberry Hill, Louis Armstrong. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, Enfantillage Pittoresque by Frank Glazer. Thanks for leaving me with that one. <laughs> a fool such as I, Hank Snow. <laughs> That's how I feel. Make the world go away, Jim Reeves. Try to remember, the Kingston Trio. Blue Bayou, Roy Orbison. Silent Night, Robert Farnan. True Love by Bing Crosby. Love is Coming Back, Genevieve Waite. And Stardust by Artie Shaw. And some other clobber. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> by Gustav Holst and, yeah absolutely and it, it reminds me actually um, so The Fall had a tune on um, Silence of the Lambs okay so it's when James Gum is uh, chasing Jodie Foster around the cellar right yeah okay and mm. he's got those night vision yeah. goggles on and he's got a fall record playing upstairs oh, I can't remember wow okay and it's a tune called Hit Priest it's just about the weirdest tune oh, that, wow. the, that The Fall ever did when I was in them anyway and I was like this is amazing stay to watch my name at the end of the credits and all that as yeah. you do last people in the cinema um, but then of course news came out of an album being released of The Silence of the Lambs and I thought Ka-ching. Whoa. And you know, our Oscar winning film, yeah, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And then, of course, they released it and it had Wire on there as well. And I think, who else was on there? Tom Petty, American right. Girls. And, and I just thought, this is going to be a right earn of this. And of course, they didn't release any of those tunes. It was all just the incidental music, oh. which hurts. Oh, Mark, I feel your pain, really do. So we should have a little look at Nick Rogue, shouldn't we? Because he was such an important filmmaker. Yeah, Nicholas Jack Rogue, born the 15th of August 1928, died 23rd of November 2018, is an English film, or was an English film director and former cinematographer. He is best known for directing films, performance, walkabout, Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bad Timing, and The Witches. The Witches, what a great film. Oh, brilliant film, that. I love that. Rogue was born in St John's Wood in London to Mabel and Jack Rogue. In 1947, after completing national service, he entered the film business as a T-Boy, moving up to a clapper loader, the bottom rung of the camera department at Marylebone Studios in London. For a time, he worked as a camera operator on a number of film productions, including Tarzan's Greatest Adventure and The Trials of Oscar Wilde. Rogue was a second unit cinematographer on David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia from 1962, which led to Lean hiring Rogue as cinematographer on his follow-up Dr. Zhivago. However, Rogue's creative vision clashed with that of Lean, and eventually he was fired from the production and replaced with Freddie Young. He was credited as cinematographer on Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death and on Truffaut's uh, Fahrenheit 451, as well as John Schlesinger's Far From the Madding Crowd. In the late 60s, Rogue moved into directing with performance alongside Donald Camel. The film is about an aspiring London gangster, James Fox, who moves in with a reclusive rock star, Mick Jagger, to escape his bosses. The film featured cinematography by Rogue and a screenplay by Camel, who initially wanted Marlon Brando for the James Fox role. Oh, OK. The film was completed in 19. 
1968, but withheld from release by the distributor, Warner Brothers. According to the producer, Sanford Lieberson, Warners didn't think it was releasable. The film was eventually released with an X rating in 1970, and despite its initial poor reception, is now seen as a cult classic. It is a cult classic. Yeah, Rogue followed up with Walkabout, which tells the story of an English teenage girl and a younger brother who are abandoned in the Australian outback by their dad and forced to fend for themselves with the help of an Aboriginal boy on his walkabout. Rogue cast Jenny Agata in the role of the girl, his own son Luke as the boy, and David Gulpilil as the Aboriginal boy. Unlike performance, it was widely praised by critics, but still didn't do the business at the box office. That's a, a, a great film as well. It is, yeah, it? yeah. Magical. Uh, his next film, Don't Look Now, is based on Daphne du Maurier's short story of the same name and starred Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland as a married couple in Venice mourning the death of their daughter who drowned in their pond at home. Still one of the creepiest films I've ever seen, that, especially yeah. when you see it at a young age. Yeah. You see that in your teens. It quickly became notorious due to a sex scene between Sutherland and Christie, which was unusually graphic for the time. Rogue's decision to intercut the sexual intercourse with shots of the couple dressing afterwards was reportedly due to the need to assuage the fears of the censors. And there were rumours at the time of its release that the sex was unsimulated. (gasps) The film received an X rating in the UK and it was widely praised by critics and is today considered one of the most important and influential horror films ever made. In the tradition of performance, Rogue cast musicians in leading roles for his next two films, 1976, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and Bad Timing. The Man Who Fell to Earth stars David Bowie, this we know, whilst Bad Timing, released in 1980, stars Art Garfunkel as an American psychiatrist living in Vienna who develops a love affair with a fellow expatriate, played by Teresa Russell, Rogue's soon-to-be wife. Mm, Have you seen that, Bad Timing? You don't like it? Uh, no. Bull boring. It was. We're right, it was right boring. It was right boring. It really was dull. Bad timing marked the beginning of a three-film partnership with the British producer Jeremy Thomas. The second of these, Eureka, in 1983, is loosely based on the true story of Sir Harry Oakes and stars Gene Hackman as a gold prospector in the 1920s. It was followed up with Insignificance, which imagines a meeting between Marilyn Monroe, Albert Einstein, Monroe's husband, Joe DiMaggio, and Senator Joseph McCarthy. Insignificance was nominated for the Palm d'Or. His next two films were Castaway and Track 29. Rogue was then selected to direct an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches by Jim Henson, who'd bought the film rights to the book in 1983. This would prove to be his last major studio film, proved a great success with critics, although it was a box office failure, which is hard to imagine, isn't it? It's a recurring theme, that, isn't it, box office? failure for him. I mean, he didn't really have any true smash films, did he? Not really, no. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Okay, Bob, let's move on to the David Bowie connection. All right, so let's do it then. Rogue was looking to cast the lead role in The Man Who Fell to Earth, and his first choice was the author of Jurassic Park and Westworld, Michael Crichton. But Crichton felt he couldn't do it. Peter O'Toole had also turned down the role. I must say, the Crichton thing, he's very tall, wasn't he, Michael Crichton? Extremely tall. And the alien in the book, is uh, is he seven or eight feet tall or something? Really tall, so, and, and Bowie isn't. No. Or wasn't. <laughs> no. Uh, okay, so uh, then Rogue happened to be watching TV one night and saw Alan Yentob's cracked actor documentary for the BBC. It became fascinated with Bowie, saying he had the same qualities he was looking for in the character. So when I was doing a cover story on this, I went to meet Nick Rogue at his house in Notting Hill in 2005. It was such a thrill. Right. And it was one of those things where I, I sort of needed his voice in there, but I had no idea I'd be able to even get hold of him. I didn't know how to you know, kind of track him. He wasn't e- easily contactable. Somehow I found a contact for his son Luke's film company, and through there um, I was just sat in my 
office or shed at the bottom of the garden one day the phone rang and it was nick rogue i was wow. just sounding me out saying just really we had a chat for about 10 minutes and he said you know i believe you want to come and have a chat and i said yeah i'd love to do that i'd love that so much and so he invited me over the following week and i went over there and just being around he was just a short walk from power square which is praise a prominent part in performance doesn't yeah. it so all that's where he lived just steeped in uh, his films you know and his history and everything and it was so so great so we went up to the first floor up the stairs, and I'm sure he has some very, very valuable-looking paintings on the stairs, and I don't stop and just stare at them, gawp at them. Right. But I was trying to kind of look out the side of my eye. We just went up to the first floor where he had his study, and it was just full of, like, ephemera and awards and all kinds of stuff, and I was secretly hoping he might just disappear for a few minutes so I could just kind of, not, not poke around, but just have a proper look at what he had, but it was just like this Aladdin's cave of, like, memorabilia and, and notes and post-its and everything. It was just a, a work, it was like an inside of somebody's brain. What what a privilege. We got talking about the film, of course. That's why I was there. And he said, um, I don't know if it was immediate, but it seemed Bowie was slightly to one side a pop star, just like Bob Dylan. It was coming in from left field and he was using a lot of odd disguises and dressing up. So this is what the impression he got from watching uh, Cracked Actor. Right. Watching him in the limo talking, for example, I noticed the curious artificial voice. It wasn't absolutely definable as a brogue or accent. It was English, but you couldn't tell exactly where he was from. And also just odd little things that interested me. Then listening to his songs and thoughts, it seemed the public reluctantly made him a star. It was quite curious and he was very down to earth about it too and he wanted his own life rogue then set up a meeting with bowie at his apartment in greenwich village it was scheduled for 6 30 p.m and rogue got there 10 minutes early bowie didn't show up until 11 p.m bursting in and apologizing profusely saying he'd overrun in the studio so rogue said to me this he said i went to new york to see him and i remember it being very late it was at recording session i think he'd forgotten i was there and i was sat in his flat while various people tried to get hold of him for me when he came back it was very late indeed but he went straight into it said he liked the idea for the film and that he'd do it it was a really brief meeting after that we talked on the phone about it and we met up beforehand the whole meeting lasted about three and a half minutes according to rogue but in that time bowie agreed to do the film found out where the location was and arranged for his people to get in touch and this is nick rogue also bowie arrived in new mexico in the same limo as cracked actor so he used it in the film and cast his driver tony Massia too what was fascinating was that I was conscious not to disturb him at all. There were certain people who were concerned about his unconventionality as an actor, wondering if he was being used as some sort of gimmick. Some executives even suggested post-syncing another voice over Bowie's. I just said, are you mad? His voice, is it? Well, absolutely. Crackers, that, isn't it? any sense. I mean, watching dubbed films is bad enough anyway, but that would have been watching <laughs> Bowie being dubbed by an another voice. How disappointing going to the Odeon to watch that. Crazy. Uh, talking about the shoot in his memoir, The World is Ever-Changing, Rogue said, I really came to believe that Bowie was a man who'd come to Earth from another galaxy. His actual social behaviour was extraordinary. He brought with him a trailer full of books and things. He hardly mixed with anybody at all. He seemed to be alone, which is what Newton is in the film, isolated and alone. In turn, Bowie said of Rogue, he's an old warlock. Something magical happens on every film that he does. Years later, he added, it didn't take long for me to realise that the man was a genius. He's at a level of understanding of art that tremendously overshadows me. I was, and still am, in awe of Rogue. Total awe. Uh, Bowie also said, there's something about Nick's films which is awfully worrying, but I think the magnetism of his movies is the wariness and the worry they create. 
We, uh, it was interesting. We got to talk about a lot of stuff. I mean, he did say that, yeah, he said uh, Bowie was essentially playing himself, you know, at that time, mm. which contradicted what Candy Clark had said. She Because she quite affronted when I suggested that, you know, because she said, she? not at all. You know, he was playing a role, you know, it's proper actor's role. Well, I think Rogue was saying, really, it was just a, a natural, a nat- what you'd call a natural performance. Well, okay. he would know. And also, yeah. I mean, we've all seen Cracked Actor. And there, as we've mentioned before, there is just not much difference between the two. No. And they were both completely out of their gourd to use the Bowie yeah. phrase on cocaine. So he, I mean, he did say as well, because I brought that up as well, saying you know, there are reports saying that you know Bowie was so out of it at the time. He said, well, you know, if, if he was, then it wasn't discernible to me because he just turned up, he delivered his lines all the time. He turned up on time. He was just perfect to be around. There was no problems with him whatsoever. And he said, you know, the thing I was very conscious of, I didn't want to even bring up the drug thing because I didn't want to use it against him or make it an issue between us. So I just left it there. And that was uh, the best thing for both of us. Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, in the cold light of day, cocaine it raises your senses, doesn't mm, it? It, yeah. it makes you more alert and more aware and everything. And so, I mean, it's quite possible that he was completely, as he says, Bambowie should know, uh, you know, from the toe to head, full of cocaine. Yeah. But uh, bright as a button, because that's what it helps you do anyway. I mean, obviously, David Bowie's a hugely intelligent mm. man anyway. Yeah, of uh, course. But cocaine just hi- heightened that. And so it's, yeah. it's truly believable. And it's funny that Candy Clark would never notice no, not at all. There also, there's a famous scene in there where, at near the end of the film, where Candy Clark has to carry Bowie. He's supposedly really emaciated, isn't he? Very, very unwell. Yeah. Uh, and she was talking about how what a, a sort of drain that was to set up because she had to. Do, obviously, she couldn't carry him. He was actually quite heavy, contrary to how he might appear, you know, physically. And so she said it was a very, very elaborate uh, series of ropes and pulleys that they had up, and he was actually lying uh, sort of across her on a skateboard that was attached to ropes with people pulling it from the other direction. Really? So it was a really intricate scene uh, and there's even one there is a scene as well where she goes into uh, either a lawyer's office or a bank and it's just shot from I think it's in New York and it's just shot from a distance uh, and it was supposed to be Bowie but it's her dressed up as Bowie because he couldn't make it that day on the shoot so there's all these little details that you wouldn't really necessarily pick up on first time round that's brilliant trivia yeah. that I mean I don't know if any of that is in this book I mean this is ace this Bob and uh, at the risk of being a bit meat and two veg about it it costs 15 quid and it's two inches thick <laughs> That, in my <laughs> eyes, is a you know value for money, Mark. value for money, definitely. Uh, but it is a is it Taschen? Is that how yeah, you pronounce a company? Yeah. Uh, is it a German company, Bob? I think I believe it is. Yeah. Okay, but this is uh, David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth uh, by Paul Duncan, and it's brilliant. I mean, it's just. You've almost got every frame from the film in it. Uh, yeah. You've seen this, haven't you? I have seen it, yeah. I just haven't bought it. I probably will, though, now you've dangled it in front of me. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just got loads of... It's got loads of stills from the film. I mean, like, hundreds and mm. hundreds. It's also got loads of uh, shots of the production. And, of course, um, we've already covered the uh, the career of Jeff McCormack. Jeff was with David Bowie, yeah. as was Duncan. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Baby Duncan was yeah. with him at the time, wasn't yeah. he, when they were filming it? Um, and so um, Jeff took loads of great photographs. So you can see uh, one of the Jeff's photographs is um, Bowie uh, being tootled with. He's got all of the alien gear on with the goggles and yeah. all that. And, uh, and, and, and Jeff took a really great photograph of him being uh, tootled with. And there's also <laughs> some shots of Bowie with Jeff in the background. So, yeah. uh, so, so Jeff was his, co- his companion yeah, at okay. that point in There's time. also there's a famous shot as well from, uh, in his trailer, isn't it, where he's reading the Buster Keaton book. Yeah, it's a favourite of Bowie's. And I, I don't know if Coco Schwab was there, and if uh, if she was, then she might have been looking after Duncan. I, I don't know, but um, yeah, that that was it. Bowie's companion was uh, Jack McCormack, as previously mentioned uh, in uh, a previous podcast. But this great, I mean, it's, you're over there, Bob. Mm. We, we we are a bit of away from each other here, but it's just 
There's oh, great, yeah. a great shot of him there. So there's that bit, really famous scene where he's looking into the mirror mm. in the bathroom yeah. and Candy Clark's in the uh, in the bath itself. And I've seen a really weird version of that photograph I know. which kind of censors it, where it's got the lino uh, where the water is so you can't see her breast. Yeah, kind of like hexagon-shaped um, patterned lino. Yeah, it's a lino that he stood on there. Right. So I, it's bizarre. It, I, yeah. I, I never could quite work that one out. Uh, but there's a great shot there of Bowie laughing, drinking a coffee with three members of the production crew, including the cameraman in the bath. Right. Right, right. It's just an amazing book. Like I say, I mean, for the money that you pay for it, I, I, I sound like a right skinflint here. I would have paid 18 quid for it probably. But Happily, yeah. It no. was, but it was only 15. But it is great. It is really, really brilliant. I would thoroughly recommend it to anyone. Um, and like, as I say, they just shots there of uh, Bowie in like that weird cabin yeah. and, and all of the crew around him and stuff. It's just it's just great. But also, uh, and I only recently discovered it, uh, it, it there's, a, there's a lot of text in the back as well. Okay, you just thought it was pictures when you got it. Yeah, right, I, just right. thought, I just thought it was stills from yeah. the film. So yeah. there's, uh, there's some really interesting stuff here. So, again, uh, we're just going to have a run at this, aren't we, Bob? We are. Okay, so the headline being a black limousine. A black limousine slices its way across a bleak desert landscape. On the back seat, a thin, white, fragile-looking David Bowie. A shock of orange-blonde hair peeking out from under his fedora. is drinking from a milk carton as he talks about his Diamond Dogs tour. Bowie had been crisscrossing North America since June 1974, promoting his Diamond Dogs album and performing tracks like Space Oddity, Rebel Rebel and Changes. After a break in August, during which he recorded some soul songs for his next album, Young Americans, Bowie resumed touring until December, travelling between venues in his black limousine because he refused to fly. Asked about his tour of America and the new music he was creating, Bowie looks into the carton and says, There's a fly floating around in my milk and it's a foreign body. That's kind of how I felt. I'm a foreign body here and I couldn't help but soak it up. It has just supplied a need in me. It's become a mythland. He continues, there's an underlying unease in America. They've developed a superficial calmness to underplay the fact that there's a lot of pressure here. But we also created Major Tom in Space Oddity, Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane. They're all facets of me. I got lost at one point. I couldn't decide whether I was writing characters or the characters were writing me or whether we were all one and the same. Mm. Film director Nicholas Rogue saw Alan Yentob's Fly on the Wall documentary, Cracked Actor, broadcast by the BBC on the 26th of January 1975. Rogue had been working with screenwriter Paul Myersberg on an adaptation of Walter Tevis's novel The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is about a tall, thin, white-haired, hollow-boned alien who travels to Earth, names himself Thomas Jerome Newton, patents many new technological advances through lawyer Oliver Farnsworth, accumulates wealth, forms a corporation, World Enterprises, and builds a spaceship for some unspecified purpose, yet remains a hermit, unknown and apart from all but a few people. Uh, Rogue said, I couldn't think of anybody else for the role. I didn't know David, but I'd seen his work and it became a sort of fixation because there seemed to be parallels in the attitudes and thoughts of the work that David was doing at the time. And there's a section here in the same book on the script which says, uh, Walter Tevis's first novel, The Hustler, 1959, became a bestseller after the 1961 film adaptation, directed by Robert Rosson and starring Paul Newman, was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won two. It's a story of a pool hustler, Fast Eddie Felson, who was a skill to beat everybody, everybody but himself. The hustler, on the surface, doesn't seem to have much to do with The Man Who Fell to Earth, explained Meyersberg, but in my view, it's very close. American society loves a 
winner. It will not tolerate a loser, someone who does not achieve his aim. There's a line in The Hustler where Eddie hears deep inside him a voice saying, you don't have to be a winner. Tevis's view was that being the best was more important than winning. There is a strong element to that in The Man Who Fell to Earth. Absolutely. The Hustler is such a remarkable film, isn't it? Yeah, but Paul, yeah. Paul Newman at his best. He also did um, the follow-up to that, which is The Colour of Money, didn't he? Uh, Walter Tevis, which got Newman an Oscar, I think. I mean, he should have got one for The Hustler, but I think it was more of a sentimental thing in the 80s. But yeah, so he wrote the follow-up too. Okay, so there you go. That is A Man Who Fell to Earth. And uh, again, looking at the book, it's just a great shot here of Bowie um, playing table tennis with a glass of champagne. Oh, nice. Um, and they must have about 500 ping-pong balls there, so he couldn't have been very good. Uh, but uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Materials such as interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends, there'll be regular film Bowie quizzes, Bowie guitar tutorials, unreleased archive written material, competitions, and perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock, and Jason Reed visiting various Bowie places of interest, and much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. I'm Danny Fortson and this is a podcast about Silicon Valley in eight parts. Can I, can I tell you something interesting that I've noticed about San Francisco? Yes, please. That's a vortex. I think she's a sociopathic liar and a narcissist. Which CEO is more Jesus-like or going to run for president? That software is very powerful. You know, is it more or less powerful than bioterrorism or a nuclear weapon? It's a rip-roaring ride through the present and a look at the terrifying plans being hatched for our future. So subscribe now to The Pivot. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.